Listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio. It's IAQ Radio for Friday, April 29th, 2016. This week is episode 412. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in the studio, Studio D, that is, in Central City, Pennsylvania, is our engineer, John. You gotta have faith. And joining me from Studio C back in McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania, is my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Hi, Joe. Hi, John. Hello, everybody. Good day, Cliff. All right, this week we've got part two of our main Indoor Air Quality Council uh, interviews from their conference, the 2016 IEQ and Energy Conference. This week we're going to play back the interviews we did with Sam Rashkin, Paula Schenk, David Shea, and Jack Springston. Excellent um, excellent interviews, if I do say so myself, and Bob Krell was a big help. Before we do, let's thank our sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's jondon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IEQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. And Particles Plus. They are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at IAQTraining.com. All right, we're going to turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to czalotnik at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental, Dayton, Ohio, for the first correct answer to last week's trivia question. The IQ Radio trivia question for Friday, April 29, 2016, has been sponsored by Ideas, LLC, the solution chemistry company creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Now for this week's IQ trivia question. Name the first woman to be placed in nomination for presidency of the United States at a major party's convention. Back to you, Joe. 
All right. Thank you, Cliff. So this week we're going to part two of our interviews uh, at the Maine Indoor Air Quality Conference. Well, their their conference uh, up in uh, Portland, Maine. It was a great time. We had a, a really nice crowd up there. And uh, last week we did our first three. This week we're going to have Sam Rashkin, Paula Shank, David Shea, and Jack Springston. And um, I also wanted to mention that Dr. Brett Singer was originally scheduled to be with us today. He's with Lawrence Berkeley Lab. We had to reschedule him for next week. He had a uh, an event, uh, something come up that uh, asked us if we could reschedule, and we were fortunate enough to have this show ready to go and made that happen. So without any further ado, we're going to jump right into the interviews from the MIAQC conference. Okay, next up is Sam Rashkin. He's the Chief Architect at the Building Technologies Office in the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy at the United States Department of Energy. He's the Chief Architect for the U.S. DOE's Energy Building Technologies Office. His work includes work leading the Department of Energy's world-class research program, Building America, and overseeing the Department of Energy's Zero Energy Ready Home Voluntary Labeling Program for Leading Edge Builders. In his prior position, he managed Energy Star for Homes since its start in 1996. You know, you're probably making as much of an impact on, on our United States housing stock as anybody maybe in, I don't know, ever. Um, you, you've been very impactful, and I'm curious, with respect to the Energy Star program you left, how many new homes today are Energy Star? Uh, the numbers reached today for Energy Star about 1.5 million homes plus, so it's, it's huge on the landscape. Last year, I think about 85,000 homes were certified, so uh, they're about, what, 800,000 single-family starts. About 10% of the homes are Energy Star. 10%, okay. And now you're working with the DOE Zero Energy Ready Home Program. Well, you wow. got it right. I got it. People really did. What's, uh, why is that program so important? Tell people a little bit about it first. What is it? What's the intent? And why is it so important to you? Zero Energy Ready Home is really important because Energy Star is a great start in terms of getting building science integrated into mainstream products. But it's not nearly enough. Um, Zero Energy Ready Home goes beyond Energy Star to optimize the energy efficient performance, but then it integrates all the other related performance attributes you want when you get that efficient. For instance, as you know, when a house gets more efficient, it gets more tight. So indoor air quality is no longer extra credit. It's absolutely part of the energy efficient requirement. So you can't even split, which is why uh, earlier, it's why a conference like this is both energy and indoor air quality, because they are inextricably linked. You can't do one without the other. So zero energy ready is that adult supervision. It says if you're going to keep going more efficient, you have to do a full comprehensive indoor air quality package. It also goes on to say, could it be that efficient? All the equipment and components inside the house also have to be efficient because the heating and cooling start to get so much smaller as a part of the total energy use, we have to start addressing the other loads to have a really super efficient home. 
And on top of that, it starts saying, no, if we're that efficient, we can really be ready for zero performance. If we simply do no cost, low cost details that enable a solar system to be added anytime in the future with a minimal or no cost penalty. So those are simple details you might as well do during construction. So it embodies all that. It all also integrates uh, some critical must-haves. We believe the best experts say should be in every home, ducts inside the conditioned space, at least the next generation code enclosure, which right now would be 2012 and 15. Uh, water efficient distribution for hot water. You know, we waste about three to 6,000 gallons of water down the drain every year just waiting for hot water. Mm -hmm. So there's no purpose. Mm -hmm. And so we have technologies and solutions that can get hot water to fixtures without the waste. So again, the basics in there. So Zero Energy Ready is a package that results in a high-performance home that's so efficient it can offset most or all annual energy consumption with renewable energy. Where do you where do you see that going as far as the marketplace and it being adopted in common building practice? Well, from from my view, it's the future of housing. It has mm -hmm. to be. Uh, there's too many people benefiting with no downsides for almost any of the players. You know, homeowners get a better home for lower cost. Mm -hmm. Communities have a higher tax base. Uh, the nation gets better air quality, more jobs, more national security. Uh, the industry winds up selling more high-performance products that deliver a better consumer experience. Everybody winds off better, and on top of that, um, it, it, it just makes good sense economically. How has the acceptance of the program been? How many people are doing, you know, building zero-energy ready homes today? Two. Two. No, uh, mm -hmm. there's. <laughs> two. Thank you. I, yeah, don't, don't quote me on that. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, we just did quote you on that, but <laughs> no, that's okay. No. I, I won't be silly anymore. Yeah. Okay. No, actually, it's been a very tough sell, and uh, the reason for that is that when we started Energy Star for Homes, we hitched our wagon to the home energy rating system, hers verification process. Okay. And HERS industry had virtually no other business because their original reason for being, which was to help new homes get more efficient, never materializes a uh, business opportunity mm -hmm. for them. So Energy Star hitched the wagon and the HERS industry went from virtually nascent to this incredible, mm -hmm. vibrant industry it is today. So vibrant that they have so many competing business interests, it's almost impossible for us to get their attention to be the uh, mass delivery solution that they were for Energy Star. So for us, it's been a lot of um, going out, pounding the pavement, getting out the program to the market, but I'm happy to say after a very, very gradual start, uh, all now have whole developments going to Zero Energy Ready Home. We're the nation's first large production builder starting four subdivisions, all Zero Energy Ready Home. We have a 7,500 unit project in Austin, Texas, that's going to be moving their builders to Zero Energy Ready Home. Uh, we have a new developments, 500, 100 uh, unit homes. So uh, it's been a long buildup, and now I'm finally start, starting to see the traction that mm -hmm. you kind of work towards, mm -hmm. and I would expect that we start hitting thousands of homes uh, in the next year or so. What's nice is it seems like the traction you have gotten has been done without much in the way of incentives or requirements through law, et cetera. Is that accurate to say? Or? It's fairly accurate. The one thing I will say, though, is that the, there's a on the book still, but always with uncertainty with the next year, this uh, $2,000 uh, tax credit 
for homeowners who have a 50% reduction in their heating and cooling okay. requirements. And zero energy ready homes routinely meet that requirement. So it's kind of an incentive that's sitting there. There are also some states that have some other incentives in play. You know, Colorado, if you do a zero energy house, you get $8,000 worth of homeowner incentives that come back to homeowner on top of the 2000 The state of New Jersey has a very uh, generous tax package or has a very incentive rebate package through the utilities there that can add up to eight or nine thousand dollars per house plus two thousand dollars of the uh, of the federal tax credit so there are some markets where it, it is pretty significant but it by and by it's not the mainstream that you have good incentive packages everywhere do you ever see this being required by law that all new homes have to be uh, zero energy ready now you're asking me questions that weren't on the list. Oh, that's right. Well, you're, you're I, going rogue. Well, he's, he's, <laughs> he's, he's known for that. Uh, in fact, I don't think half these questions have been on the list. Uh, I want to problem. speak to my rep about this. <laughs> oh, boy. But, uh, you know, actually, uh, if you look, go back to Energy Star version 1 and mm -hmm. version 2, and about 80% of that's code now today. So uh, as, okay. as recently as we started Energy Close. Star, already 2009, 2012, have encumbered the requirements because virtually they become so ubiquitous through the program. Mm -hmm. And I'll submit that what we're doing right now with zero energy ready home will probably be part of code by 2020, 2025. Interesting. But how our program, of course, will keep moving. How do, do those two programs work together? I mean, how, Energy Star and Zero Energy programs, is there a connection there somehow? Of course there is. Okay. <laughs> the interesting thing for me is, you know, I never got more rec recognition. I don't think I deserved it, but I, I got more recognition for that program than anything I've done in my life. And you would ask, why would you leave such a program? And, and um, the big reason for me is that you never, ever, ever want to do a home that's not certified Energy Star. But for anyone that's an expert and knows what goes on in housing, you would never stop there. I would never buy an Energy Star home by itself. I'd, I'd only buy zero mm -hmm. energy ready or better. And that's what any expert would buy. And so the reason to go to do zero energy ready home was to finally be advocating a label that you would actually believe in for your own family. And with that understanding that you would start with Energy Star, the two programs are completely aligned. So I want to go more, but you have to start and get as a prerequisite Energy Star certified, mm -hmm. and then you build from that. Because it's that basic building science foundation that should be in every home. And so the way they're related is that Energy Star is a prerequisite, then we build on to that. Then if you do all of our things, uh, uh, Zero Energy Ready Home is a prerequisite for FIAS, for Passive House US. Okay. So Passive House certification <coughs> requires Zero Energy Ready Home, and then it takes it a step further. It's the absolute ultimate you can do in the super most ultra-efficient ultra house you can build. So you have a, a great staircase of what you can do in the housing industry. You can start with code, which is a good basic mm -hmm. home now, you can go above code with Energy Star. You can go to zero energy ready home for that expert recommended home, and for the ultimate home, go to passive house. I was going to jump in. So obviously, we're talking about new housing starts here, which is you know significant uh, potential future impact. But of course, the, the most of our houses are existing, and, and I've I've heard you in previous talks talk about the use of the term building audit, energy audit, and I and I I just like to hear just your quick you know. Uh, we'll mention this later, but it, uh, I'm stealing your thunder. But well, we can talk about. It. We'll hit it later. But essentially, uh, words matter. 
and we have 110 or 108 million existing homes, about 80 million, 78 million single-family homes, and we want to go and have people let us in their door and help them solve their problems. But we promote this service by calling it an energy audit. Uh, and I can ask anyone in a room anywhere how many people want to be audited, okay? And it's like virtually coming up with a name that's the most ineffective name you can possibly come up with. Okay. I've studied this for many hours to try and think what could be a possibly a worse name I can come up with. <laughs> and the only one I can find is a home colonoscopy. <laughs> so, so, so beyond that, energy audit right. is the absolute worst name I have to approach the American homeowner, <laughs> 80 million, say, I have a solution. For your problems, for your high bills, for your bugs and pests, your dust, for your constantly feeling sick or having respiratory problems, for having odors in your house, I can help address your pain, your dank basements, all those issues that you're living with. They are not normal. They're not what you have to live with. I can come in. I'll give you a checkup. We'll find out what's causing your pain. And let's come up with a plan to help you get the best out of your largest investment of a lifetime. That's a whole different discussion and conversation than can I audit your house? Can I probe and go to every office and see what's really going on? You know, it's just not the um, best salesmanship. I got one more question that going back to the steps. You had Energy Star and then yeah, I code heard first. The code, code okay. A good basic starting point. Good Code's basic, gotten better, yeah. Good basic home it has states adopt code, they'll get better. Then you have the Energy Star. Where would the Indoor Air Plus fit in? Would that be a part of the Zero Home? or the, uh, Indoor Air Plus is a mandatory requirement of the Zero Energy Rate okay. Home. So we have about 50% more health improvements Zero Energy Ready Home than are naturally included in the uh, Energy Star Certified House. So they have about half the Indoor Air Plus requirements. We have the other half. Okay. Well, thank you, Sam Rashkin. Always a pleasure to see you. and. Uh, Get a chance to talk. You bet. Thanks. Thanks a bunch. Take care. All right. Next is Paula Shank. Paula is the director of the Indoor Environment and Health Program at the University of Connecticut. She was part of the group that established the Center for Indoor Environments and Health at the University of Connecticut. She developed multiple initiatives directed at improving indoor environments in schools and offices. And at UConn's Occupational Medicine Clinic, she is called upon to provide guidance on environmental and workplace interventions as part of patient treatment. She also teaches environmental health at UConn, instructs in the master's public health program, and is a seminar leader on asthma and environment and coordinates segments on occupational health in the medical school. Welcome, Paula. Great to have you. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. It's been an interesting conference. Uh, You do a lot of work in indoor environments. I first became aware of your work through a, um, a, a, a book that was put out on on mold and uh, dampness yeah. and health. And what was the, the title of that? But it was um, guidance for clinicians on yeah. mold and moisture. I don't think that got enough publicity out there, Paul. <coughs> well, we <laughs> I don't know about that, <laughs> but we actually followed that with an online course that offered CEUs for physicians. Okay. And we are in the midst of updating that course and. I know you're interested in what kind of education physicians have available. Yes. And that will be available soon. It will also reflect some of the things that have happened since 2004. Good. Um, now, are, are physicians learning about indoor air quality, indoor environments, and how they affect health in medical school? Um, 
That's a really hard question because I can't say <coughs> that I know what all medical schools do. But what I can say is that a focus on occupational environmental medicine is pretty unusual in basic medical school. However, since the Affordable Care Act, with a new focus on prevention, occupational environmental medicine has become more of interest and has been integrated more into curriculums, certainly at our medical school and I suspect everywhere. Hmm. Now, you've done a lot of work in schools and we all know that schools have a lot of problems. Uh, the, the infrastructure is old in many cases. What are the most common problems you have run across when you're dealing with schools and indoor environments? You know, when we met briefly yesterday, you said that, you know, you might ask me to talk about schools. And that question is very tough because my experience with schools is the problems run the gamut. But if I was to say what's the most critical, Probably what's happened are problems that relate to poor maintenance because number of custodians maintenance budgets are so cut and that so relates to the indoor environment and then the legacy problems that schools the older schools tend to be built on land that towns I keep wanting to talk to you guys too um, on land that towns couldn't sell otherwise. So they tend to be wet. Swamps, or sure, swampland. I literally, and um, I guess Steve isn't still in the room. Oh, you are. Steve. I literally um, called up Bill Turner one day because I had done a visit to a school, and there was a stream in the basement running through the stream. Oh, wow. You know, running through the basement of the school because the school had been built over that. So problems relating to ventilation systems that are either inadequate or not maintained, problems related to all this legacy moisture, which then relates in bioaerosols. Mm -hmm. And um, whenever I talk about schools, I have to say that, you know, at our clinic, we see a lot of teachers because teachers are in those environments day after day after day. But we get action in the schools because of people worried about children. And I'm not saying there's no risk to children, mm -hmm. but it's a, it's a complex, many stakeholders, many points of view. So the, the, the teachers are sort of like the canary in the coal mine in some ways, aren't they? <laughs> I absolutely hate that. <laughs> you hate that term, huh? <laughs> um, I wouldn't say that, but uh, certainly teachers have more exposures those environments when there's problems with that environment. Okay. Yeah, and certainly well, the children, I think, are the prized resource, so we all get very protective of our kids. And, I, I, and it's understandable. You know, as a consultant, I've dealt with schools for years and years in, in those situations, trying to diffuse the hysteria, right? Especially if you have a public meeting at the school district, which I'm sure you've dealt with, where you have a bunch of hysterical parents, an upset teacher's union, administration trying to defend their position. And really, there's potential there problems there. Oh yeah. To some of the, to some of those kids and um, we certainly have done work where we've seen differences in numbers of kids with asthma symptoms based on where they are in a building. Mm -hmm. hmm. Now Bob just mentioned you know doing consulting work and and when people come in and do consulting work they typically develop some kind of report. Yes. You see these reports. Yes. How can they improve on the reports to help you and the physicians you work with 
better treat their patients? Well, um, one of the things that I addressed in that book that you first asked me about was how to interpret information okay. in reports. And um, reports are much more helpful, and I don't know if Ed's still in the room, when it has a good qualitative assessment. And the issue of if the concern is bioaerosols, looking at numbers and comparing inside and outside, it's not very helpful. And I actually do education with um, physicians and other providers on, okay, the patient has, is worried about mold. The issue might be other contaminants that are accumulating because mm -hmm. ventilation is inadequate, but they're excited about that. And then the school district, thinking they were doing a good thing, hired somebody who gave them a report that said, indoors is less than outdoors, you don't have a problem. And you do have a problem. And those negative kinds of comparisons um, are almost meaningless. Where it is helpful, and I agree with Ed here, is in specific problem solving or other types of sampling other than air sampling. So reports are complex. Um, physicians don't have time. In fact, okay. that's why we're very lucky in our clinic because the physician will call me in and I have time. You can interpret that for him? <laughs> yes, okay. and I will also work with our patients. Okay. But in primary care today, and I'm trying to get primary care physicians to pay attention to the environment, they don't really have time to look at that. And so it's, it's, it's difficult. We're getting better. And again, the word prevention which is what I'm all about, is turning a corner a little bit in the medical world. Good. Well, I mean, one, one of the big things that I've always been, one of my pet peeves is uh, when environmental consultants write reports. Okay, they're doing environmental sampling, but that environmental sampling doesn't necessarily <laughs> equate to health ramifications. It, it doesn't, really. I mean, we're, we're testing environmental parameters, but we really don't, especially in microbial, we don't really have any real correlation of the causal agents and what's happening to the health side, but then you'll see these consultants, these same consultants, start making health-related claims in their reports, and that really irritates me. Well, I appreciate that very much, but don't get hung up on causal. There's enough evidence about contribution to health conditions, mm -hmm. and for instance, everybody talks about mold. Well, mold is an indicator of moisture. Clearly. And it could be bacteria, it could be dust mites, it could be right. um, uh, cockroach mm -hmm. stuff, it could be animal dander, it could be anything that moisture that's going to proliferate because of moisture. And mold is really important because it tells us there's moisture. And so there is a correlation in terms of a contributor to respiratory conditions. Mm -hmm. So again, um, some consultants try to make it a, a slam dunk cause and effect mm -hmm. and um, I always, I work with physicians, I'm not a physician when people call me I say okay have you been to your primary care doc and talked about your symptoms because the docs need to sort out that particular individual situation in public health when I work with school districts it's a little different then what we're doing is reducing risk Mm -hmm. for people to become sick or risk for those that have conditions that the environment will make them more sick. 
I mean, a key point you touched on, though, is you know, mold has become the uh, the media poster child, and for many people in the industry, the poster child. And, and I think that's really important. You know, it's their potential bioaerosol microbial issues, which definitely incorporate you know encompass much more than mold. So doing a spore trap, pass or fail, doesn't necessarily tell you anything about what's going on in that environment. Absolutely, and I'd yeah. rather have a report that said. Um, <coughs> that did, you know, we call it the tissue test, and industrial hygienists sometimes don't like that. They want to take measurements, but we take a tissue and see if the return, I'm looking around to see where the return is, it's over there. Um, and, I mean, I was trained well by the, the Turner guys, and I, well enough to know how far I can go and when I need to bring in building scientists. I'm curious, we asked, uh, a couple people earlier about state licensing for mold people. Do you have an opinion you'd like to share on Oh, that? boy. You know, I'm, it's a conundrum. I don't want, in school districts that can't afford stuff, I don't want them to have to pay more than what they already have to pay to get the right expert in. And I am a fan of professional society, peer review kinds of certification. However, I just finished a research project having to do with catastrophic weather and the fact that um, what happens is that we're going to have a lot more wetness and opportunity for wetness inside. And one of the aspects of the program I was involved with was trying to get the word out to both workers and um, homeowners and the general public that they need to be protected from exposures that they're going to have. And maybe certification will help with that. So that's a long thing to say. I can't say definitively like Ed did. I can't say definitively like this gentleman that there's a lot to be said for it. Um, so I'm, you know, I guess it depends on what's in the certification program and if the practitioner then puts a premium on his fee because he's certified. I don't want that. So how it's done would be important to you. Right. And what's required, as a, and I think that's what Guy was pointing out as well, and we see that nationwide. Real quick, before, before we let you go. Recovery from catastrophic weather, mold exposure, and health-related training. Is that uh, a document that's ready to go now, or are you still working on that? Actually, and I can give you the website. We okay. have a project website that you can... I can't tell it to you so okay. I don't memorize it. No problem. Give it to you and you can put it on. Yes. Um, and on that website is all kinds of guidance materials that we developed to educate people so they will protect themselves. And I think it's important to realize climate change in the Northeast is going to mean wetter weather, whether it's more winter ice dams or more fall hurricanes, more severe, they call them rain bombs. So we're going to have more wetness in our buildings and we have to deal with that. And we need to be protected from exposures because we're talking about, you know, amount of exposures in terms of bioaerosols that dwarfs a lot of, not all of the work, but a lot of the work I do with schools. Who, uh, who helped fund that? It was funded by NIOSH and CDC. Okay. Um, 
It built on some work I did for EPA earlier on looking at indoor environments because of catastrophic weather. I but that particular was funded by NIOSH. I heard EPA might be coming out with something similar. Were you working with them? Is this going to be a part of that, do you know? Or? Well, I'm making all our materials and I'm still involved with the indoor environments division at EPA. Okay. And I'm making my materials available to them. I see. But the funding was all NIOSH okay. for that particular project. Well, thank you, Paul, and much. It was great to finally get to meet you yes. and talk to you. And, yes, uh, we tried we'll it before and couldn't future. quite get it together. Yeah, we'll have to get you on the thank show. Thank you, gentlemen. Four hours something. Okay, well, we've got to stop for just a minute and thank our sponsors. We'll be back after 90 seconds for the second half of our interview. We will have David Shea, and then we'll have a wrap-up with Jack Springston. And thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. The Restoration and Specialty Cleaners Association have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is trsca.org. Thanks to our advertisers. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Visit them at legends-enviro.com and, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's jondon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. And Particles Plus. They are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Particlesplus.com. Count on us. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. With us now is David Shea. Uh, David is a principal engineer with Sanborn Head and Associates in Concord, New Hampshire. He's responsible for leading vapor intrusion and environmental remediation projects throughout the United States and abroad. He's conducted vapor intrusion and mitigation assessments at sites involving more than hundreds of structures and millions of square feet. His uh, bachelor's is in civil engineering from Princeton, and he's got a master's in civil engineering from MIT, and he's also a licensed professional engineer in 13 states. Welcome. Great to have you here. Great to be here, Nice Joe. to meet you. Thanks and for inviting me. It's, it's been, um, this is a topic that I don't think we hear a lot about, vapor intrusion. I mean, you know, I hear a lot about it because I'm in Pennsylvania, and New Jersey apparently is pretty active in, in the vapor intrusion world. How common are vapor intrusion 
events, issues in residential and commercial properties in the United States? Sure, Joe. Well, uh, just to back it up a little bit, to put it in a little bit of perspective, I think many people will be familiar with the term uh, radon intrusion. And so radon is a naturally occurring radioactive gas, and, and that can intrude or get into people's homes through um, transfer of, of subsurface air or vapor into a structure. We use the term vapor intrusion more specifically to refer to the same phenomenon, but when it, when it is sourced from hazardous chemicals that, uh, that have been released into the subsurface from, a, from various types of facilities. It could be a dry cleaning facility, it could be a former industrial facility, um, it could be a Superfund site, a former, former waste disposal site near, within or near a neighborhood. Um, there are lots of potential uh, sources for VOCs, or, or what we talk about when we talk about vapor intrusion. There's lots of potential VOC sources for vapor intrusion. The state of New Jersey obviously has a lot of industrial activity, and um, so that that can be one of the states that has uh, more potential for vapor intrusion into residential, commercial, industrial structures just by dint of the number of sites uh, that are that are that are in that state. So um, uh, just put a little more context on it. There's, there's thousands of dry cleaning facilities around the United States, and, and dry cleaning facilities are most commonly uh, the least um, uh, funded in terms of cleanups because they're, they're small businesses that may have gone out of business. There's no, there's no one there to pick up the, uh, the cost for remediation. So um, Probably in the vapor intrusion world, it's the it's the dry cleaning facilities uh, that that are embedded in neighborhoods that could potentially be an issue for residential structures. Uh, we've also talked about um, uh, former industrial facilities that have been repurposed to make uh, commercial space mm -hmm. or, um, or or buildings that have been constructed on former former disposal sites or near dis former disposal <laughs> sites. So these are the types of settings where VOC vapor intrusion might might be an issue. So if, if I've got a home or a building and, and I go back and I see that over the years there weren't any dry cleaners, there weren't any uh, disposal sites there, I know directly under me, am, am I in the free or do I have to worry about maybe something coming from another location to, to my location? Um, you're probably pretty good if you've done some some research on um, where your where your structure where your house is located in relation to potential sources of VOCs. Uh, but remember that VOCs can travel with groundwater flow. So even uh, many blocks away, if there's been a major release of chemicals to the subsurface from a former manufacturing facility, and your structure is is downstream or down gradient of, of that release. Uh, it would be a good idea to, to, to look in the public records on, uh, on whether the, the environmental agency in that, in that town or that state has information on the extent of VOC migration in the groundwater. Because that could be a potential source for vapor intrusion. Well, I mean, just the, the thing is, as a potential purchaser of a property, how do they go about um, ascertaining, you know, whether this condition exists rather than doing a full you know site assessment and paying somebody to do that yeah. is there is there any database available or any information yeah. that they can readily get to there it's it's somewhat state specific okay. so in the state of New Hampshire there's a system called one stop where you can go on online uh, to the Department of Environmental Services and 
and look at an, a specific address and, and map out whether there are any <coughs> former or active um, hazardous waste facilities in the area. And, and uh, that, that gives you one, one, one tool to use to, to try to ascertain whether you might have a potential, potential issue. Other states have similar programs, but as you know, every state has different levels sure. of funding for these kinds of yeah. programs. I'm wondering if, if in your experience, um, you find more problems in buildings with basements, buildings that have slab on grade versus buildings that are crawl space. Is there any, you know, intuitively you would think a basement might be more of a problem, but I find intuitive thoughts aren't always. Yeah, it's, it's uh, more a question of whether there's a potential source for VOCs to, to be near a structure. Okay. Um, that has a much, much more of a controlling factor is, is whether there's a potential VOC source than maybe the type of building construction. All things being equal, though, if you have a, a, a VOC presence in, in the subsurface above a structure that has different, maybe three different structures with di three different types of uh, construction, it's really going to depend on the integrity of the construction, okay. uh, uh, whether you have cracks in the foundation, whether it's a slab on grade can still have cracks, it could have utility penetrations. It's a matter of whether there are pathways mm -hmm. for uh, vapor to enter the structure more so than, than you know, the general type of construction. But you do have a point that deeper, deeper, deeper basements might, might put you in closer proximity to the source of the contamination if it's a groundwater problem. And I think maybe older homes that w where they didn't use a vapor barrier below a slab, right. does that help when you have a vapor barrier below your slab? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Vapor barriers, um, uh, some of the older homes, in spe specifically in New England, are field stone construction mm -hmm. type foundations. Um, much more prone to vapor entry from soil gas, uh, but vapor barriers—it's a, a good, a good thing to have. Also, just radon, radon mitigation systems are just as effective for VOC vapor mm -hmm. intrusion as they are for radon. Okay, so adding a, 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 a radon mitigation system could be the solution if you had a vapor intrusion problem. Yeah, it's it's 99% of the time it's going to be the right the. the the proper way to mitigate a structure for VOC vapor intrusion, combined with doing some sealing of, of what we call preferential pathways for vapor entry, the cracks, the joints, the, uh, the utility penetrations, uh, the crawl spaces. Uh, it's important, too, to have someone uh, install a, a radon mitigation system or a vapor intrusion mitigation system that has experience in this, mm -hmm. in this type of, of work. So, I'm wondering if... Um if you have a consumer or even indoor air quality professionals and, and they're dealing with, are there certain signs, symptoms that maybe there's a vapor intrusion issue? I mean, these are oftentimes things you can't yeah. smell or taste or whatever. That's right. See, obviously. Right. You know, typically VOC vapor intrusion is at such low concentrations that you're not going to be able to detect it with, with your nose. Um, yet the, the low-level concentrations <coughs> can present a health risk uh, depending on what chemical it is and, and how long the exposure is. So um, you, we, you can also think about what other what what are other indicator parameters or, or variables that might might be co-occur with a VOC vapor intrusion problem. What so, would some of those other indicators be? Well, you could think about, uh, we talked with one gentleman here a little bit earlier about uh, sewer gas odor. Okay. Um, might be an indication that you've got... Uh, uh, vapors coming in from somewhere, either through uh, a dry trap or through a, 
uh, uh, through the backfill of a, of a sewer lateral. Um, uh, even um, organic type smells that you might sense from the from moisture from from the soil around the foundation. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, any, any sign that there may be um, soil gas entering the structure uh, could be a, a signal that VOC vapor intrusion may be occurring. But again, I want to emphasize that you, you have to have a VOC source in, mm -hmm. in the area. It's just it's not generally the case that VOC vapor intrusion is a risk for 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 all houses. That's not. I live in Pennsylvania, loaded with old coal mines, abandoned coal mines. Does that have any effect on the potential for vapor intrusion in the homes in those areas? Uh, coal mines typically, uh, the, the, the pollutants coming off coal mines are, are typically um, metals and heavy metals. They're not volatile okay. chemicals. So uh, I, I don't see a direct connection with, with that type of pollutant or contaminant and vapor intrusion, unless that contaminant was to cause subsurface conditions that um, would create a secondary effect that might might generate uh, uh, a VOC, but that very rarely would that be. I was also that. thinking about pathways as opposed mm -hmm. to the, the source of the issue. Yeah, so yeah I, pathways I, is a big a, a big focus these days in the vapor intrusion world. Um, even if you don't have a VOC source below a, a residential structure or a commercial structure. Uh, VOCs can migrate in, in stormwater lines and sewer pipes and in the backfill material that these lines are constructed in because mm -hmm. that material is more permeable than the native soils around it. So um, there, there's been, there is now more, more effort and research being done on VOC migration in, in path in these called preferential or alternative pathways into structures. How about hydraulic fracturing to open that can of worms? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just, you know. Let's yeah, <laughs> talk about pathways. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm not an expert in, in hydraulic fracturing, but what I, what I know a little bit about is that it typically does not, it does not cause um, fractures to get very close to the surface mm -hmm. of, the, of, the, of the ground, and that's really you have to have the pathway complete from the source to, mm -hmm. to the foundation and that's typically not going to be the case where, where hydraulic fracturing is concerned. It's interesting because they, there's complaints about the groundwater being contaminated yeah. too and the, could that be the transport mechanism the groundwater and then possibly I, I'm just possibly um, it, it, you also have when the a contaminant is in the groundwater. It has to it has to diffuse its way out of the groundwater, and, mm -hmm. and many times the contaminants are in deeper groundwater. And probably the most uh, effective barrier to vapor intrusion naturally occurring is water. So moisture oh, in the okay. soil, moisture in the ground, is is your best best barrier to vapor intrusion. VOCs pass through water uh, by by many orders of magnitude less effectively than they do through air. So wet soils and, and groundwater is actually your friend uh, in many cases for preventing vapor intrusion. Interesting. So are, I'm curious, where is most of your work? You're, you're, I know you're located in uh, in Concord here, yep. but is it most of your work most, in this area? Most in the northeast, yeah, okay. and um, in New York State. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll have traveled all over the, the country, in some cases out of country, to just to address some specific Give us one problems. unusual one. Give us a, what, what people like to hear a story. Tell yeah. us a little story about <laughs> one of your crazier projects, one of your more interesting projects. Uh, let's see. Um, well, 
uh, I'm involved in a lot of a lot of industrial buildings, and um, the uh, so sometimes the the HVAC systems in, in industrial buildings can make a, a vapor intrusion problem worse by creating uh, negative pressure conditions in specific areas. We think of commercial industrial buildings mostly being positive pressure. But some of these older buildings have their air handler units in mechanical rooms sitting in a back room on the slab. And that's the same room where they used to mix their chemicals and dump them down the, the floor drain or into a trench. And we came across one, one example, and I have it in my workshop talk later today, where the air handler unit is sitting right next to a floor trench that has high levels of VOCs in it, and the air handler return is within the mechanical room, and it's drawing, it's drawing VOC vapors right out of the trench mm. into the return air system, and then blowing it all over the building. Mm. So uh, it's, we call that supercharged vapor. Supercharged. <laughs> well, David, thanks for joining us. It's Great. A very interesting and interesting topic. Yep. Thanks very much. Look forward to talking in the future. Great. I had a comment and a question. Yes, sir. So, Joe, I hate to give you something to worry about, but I had a background in coal mining. So sometimes you get old coal seams or coal waste start smoldering and burning. So that's a potential vapor okay. getting up in the yeah. homes. And of course, your coal mining generates methane, but I've not actually heard of that becoming a problem up above the ground. Now, my question is, how conclusive is IAQ testing to uh, identify or rule out or look at the mitigation for soil gas? I see a real, you get these magic number guidelines to compare to. I see a real potential. You go above the numbers for just normal background, other sources. And on the other hand, these uh, VOCs come in real intermittent. So if you take your sample at the wrong time, you're going to get a false positive. So how, how good is IQ sampling in your work? I, I heard you speak earlier, uh, Ed, and I agree with your uh, some of your comments about doing a, a thorough building evaluation before getting into the sampling realm. Um, there's some newer newer technology available now uh, that is uh, real-time instrumentation, where you can bring a portable GCMS into the structure and 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 get some real-time data within minutes and move that instrument around the structure and watch how the concentrations vary over time because you're, you're right, there's, uh, there's a lot of variability in con indoor air concentrations, particularly for VOCs, and they can go up and down in a day depending on, on the, how the HVAC system is running and, and other factors. So uh, uh, there's been some advances in, in the instrumentation technology to get more real-time information. And just a quick comment. I I feel that it's much rather than make your decision based on comparing to these magic numbers the states issue, it's relative numbers. So it's very good what, what you're saying is you're getting different times and places. If you get unusual peak, it doesn't matter what that number is, relative, you get something going on there. And if you understand that building, you can start focusing on soil gas and uh, that's a good use of monitoring. I'm afraid a lot of the consultants going to grab an air sample. They don't have a clue whether. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go to Guy and then, then Steve. Dave, this kind of follows up on what Ed was saying. Uh, I'm an indoor quality consultant. Um, I get called that we're having odors in a commercial building. Yes. And I go out, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm going to investigate the building. Right. Then you go to the New Hampshire guidance documents for vapor intrusion. And they seem to concentrate more on the geotechnical or gas vapor uh, monitoring 
And I'm wondering, uh, from the view uh, that, that you might be looking at vapor intrusion, how would you uh, ask a normal indoor air quality consultant to proceed when they're doing an investigation, when in fact it might not be something in the building, but it could be a vapor intrusion issue? Um, good question. Just picking up on the theme of, of investigating the building, you want to consider what what kind of chemicals are being used in that building, cleaning agents, what the building was made of, is there off-gassing of VOCs from the building materials. Um, it, it's, we wouldn't recommend going into a, a building cold and just beginning to take samples. It's, you you want to gather the information, as, as Ed said, to inform the type of samples that you might collect eventually. Because you want to put this, you need to have context for this data. Uh, there's so many sources of, of VOCs besides uh, vapor intrusion uh, that you, you would want to try to rule in or rule out before you, before you were to go um, do more exp expensive or extensive external investigations and, and, and that type of work. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm getting right, right at your question. Well, it was more of, of when I read the vapor intrusion documents from the yeah. state, they seemed to concentrate on vapor gas. Yeah. monitoring or geotechnical monitoring yeah. rather than their presumption is that there's a source nearby and, and so to have vapor intrusion you start with whether there's a potential subsurface source so if, if you can do some work to rule that out in the beginning then you can you can focus your indoor air issues on on issues that might be related to indoor sources so um, that for vapor intrusion it starts with an understanding of whether there's an external source from from a former site um, or former use of that structure that could have released chemicals to the subsurface nearby. The possibility of an external source of that. Okay. Steve? Yeah, so this is, this is a, an area where geotechnical engineers and indoor air professionals have a real crossover, and we can really help each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because as a rule, people who work inside buildings don't understand the soil mechanics and the underwater ground the groundwater flow right. and as a rule <laughs> geotechnical engineers don't understand you know Those. mostly what goes on inside buildings right. and uh, and I have I've been to many vapor intrusion sessions I, I've taught but I've listened to your side to the yeah. geotech side and I kept hearing the watchword multiple lines of evidence yes. right so this is how we get to this point it's not testing inside the building it's finding a source outside mapping where you think the plume is, taking groundwater samples, taking samples under the slab, finally maybe taking samples inside the building and taking all that evidence to see if there's a source outside that's affecting inside. But it's amazing to me, and any of you who haven't done this, you might go to one of the geotechnical seminars that goes on, um, you know, like they have whole day events for their licensed site professionals. It's fa fascinating what you folks know about what's going on under the ground. I mean, they, they make these models of where things are flowing from, you know, this dry cleaner dumped here, and we know that after 50 years, it's basically here because we've taken all these samples. Um, and there's, there are, there's really good data on a lot of these sites. Um, and so I think, I think we would all agree that, you, you know, the first step is not to take a sample inside but if you suspect that, it might be helpful to get in touch with somebody like David and say, you know, what do you know about this area? <laughs> yeah. 
Very, very well said, Steve. And, and I would, I would complement that by saying, and, and for the geotechnical or environmental engineers, once you go inside the building, <laughs> and, and we, there's a very little, very little knowledge about how how the building interacts with those chemicals that might be coming into the structure. Right. There's a different level of variability when yeah. you get inside the building, yeah. and that's not necessarily your expertise. Right. And, I, I know nothing about soil. And that's so. partly why I'm here, is to right. learn more about the inside of the building. All right. Well, thank you, David. Thanks, Joe. Pleasure Thanks a lot. And talking to you. Okay. Next up, Jack Springston is a certified industrial hygienist, certified safety professional, and a fellow of the American Industrial Hygiene Association. He's got 27 years of experience in industrial hygiene and occupational health. He's been a certified industrial hygienist since back in 93, only one are one of only approximately 50 active certified industrial hygienists who also hold a subspecialty certificate in indoor environmental quality. Uh, Jack has a BS degree in environmental science and biology from LIU Southampton College and a Master of Science degree in environmental and occupational <coughs> health sciences from the SUNY Hunter College. He's a past chair of both the American Industrial Hygiene, Indoor Environmental Quality Committee, and the Biosafety and Environmental Microbiology Committee. And as I mentioned, he's an AIHA Distinguished Fellow. I left out Distinguished. Yeah. Welcome to, uh, to this week's uh, show. It's kind of an unusual show. We've got a combination of the Healthy Indoors and IAQ Radio. Radio. We're here at the uh, Northeast Indoor Air Quality and Energy Conference. Jack? We've been talking a lot about licensing. Let's get your opinion on licensing of mold inspectors and mold remediators. Should we, should states be licensing these people? <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> no. Okay. Next question. All right. No. Good. Bob, Bob was uh, stated it quite well before. Um, the problem is the four-day wonders. Um, I. I'm a, I'm a licensed mold assessor because I, you know, I had to go take the, the, the class. But uh, the training, depending on the training provider, uh, is can vary widely. I mean, I've I've heard stories where <clears throat> people who have been a specialist investigator for per, pretty much their whole life are now teaching a mold assessor course, and it's insane. I mean. Uh, they, they, they don't understand building sciences, they don't understand um, IAQ, they couldn't even spell IAQ if, if you gave them a chance, and yet here they are trying to teach um, people in these, these aspects of mold. Um, and then, uh, like Bob had mentioned before, the, the prerequisites is 18, be able to spell your own name, and, and pass a, uh, take a 32-hour course, uh, you don't really need to stay away. Um, and then take a 50-question uh, 50 multiple-choice exam and pass it. With 70. <coughs> Only 70%. If you get 7 out of 10 right, <laughs> yeah. you're good. Yeah, and, and if you don't pass it, you can take it again. <laughs> Interesting. I, during the same session, or do you have to retake the it, training? It depends on, no, it depends on the training provider. Wh whatever they, whatever uh. they write, and if the state accepts it, then, then it's okay. Um, they could say, you know, come back in a week and take it. They mm -hmm. could say, come back in an hour. Uh, it depends on what you write in your application package and whether whether or not the state says okay. 
Well, there was a big meeting up in New York of, I think it was recently. Called the, yeah, the PACME. Yeah, and presented there. And what was the reaction there? I understand Department of Health. Were they there? Did oh, they yeah, yeah. Representatives Absolutely. Yeah, was it telling them that... Well, there was a big session. We had actually all the New York State Department of Health uh, representatives, you know, from that uh, from that enforcement branch, were there. How do they feel this is going? Well, I mean, I think they they know one of the big limitations right now is that you have legislation, but you don't have a code rule. So, in other words, there's no there's no detailed descriptive uh, regulation on how to enforce it. So they they really are. are you know, they've been tasked with enforcing something that they don't have the enforcement rules written for yet. So all they can really enforce at this juncture is whether or not you're licensed. That's it. You know, if you work on a project, whether you're licensed. And, and what, you know, their intent, it seems, is still that they're protecting consumers. Um, but at this point, I'm not so sure they are. And I, I think they're just potentially confusing consumers. With this, with this four day wonder situation, and certainly, uh, you know, potentially adding another tier of cost. But see, again, you can exempt in New York State. If you don't call it a mold job, it doesn't fall under the mold regula- the mold law. Right. If you call it renovation or remodeling, it's a water loss. Yeah, I mean, almost. It's really it's semantics. In fairness to the State Department of Health people, I don't think... Department of Labor, actually. And that's the other thing that's different. Department of Labor is managing the training, whereas in the asbestos end, it's the Department of Health. So this is a totally new configuration in New York State for regulatory. I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, they didn't ask for this law. I so doubt it. This was probably placed in their lap, and they're making the best of a difficult yes. situation. Is that yeah. accurate to say? Yeah, it, 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 yeah I take it that way. Primary driving force was uh, Sandy, Superstorm Sandy, um, and and all the people who were getting ripped off by <clears throat> other people going in and saying you've got a mold problem, and they didn't, or if they did have a mold problem, uh, you know, a gallon of gas in the match, and we can fix it for you. When gallon bleach. Reality, <laughs> Uh, even worse, a gallon of bleach, yes. Well, is it, I mean, it seems like at least they're requiring that people have some minimum amount of training, and so maybe that's more than what people had before when Sandy, but you had people coming in that had no training, no education, no licensing, no certification. You could argue that, but um, if if the training is incorrect, then it's it's worse than no training okay. at all. all right. um, I understand. Well, and the perception the perception thing again. I think the concern Jack and I both have, and people in you know working in New York State, is that the perception they've just turned us all into a commodity, and the commodity is in the consulting end is the licensed New York State assessor. That's the criterion that uh, consumers are going to be judging by, not by your other credentials, not by your requisite knowledge, not by your previous experience or all the other potential things that really factor in. You know, it's like everybody has been just equalized and minimalized down to that license now, I think. Right. I uh, I could train my son, who's an electrical engineer, and he could pass the exam and be a mold assessor, and he would would be absolutely clueless. (laughs) But he'd be licensed. Within this discussion, you've, and I think everyone has mentioned that um, doing mold assessment and mold remediation is not just a matter of going out and taking samples, that you have to understand building science. And a couple of people have tried to differentiate between asbestos uh, and asbestos sampling and mold and mold investigations. And I wondered if you could expand on that a little bit. Does an asbestos inspector have to understand how a building works to do his job? 
<coughs> no, for the most part, no. Um, I actually, I began my career in doing asbestos investigations. Uh, and really what you need to understand is what materials might contain asbestos. Um, if you're doing a, a, a full building survey, um, again, you need to understand what, which materials are suspect, which might contain uh, asbestos, which ones do I need to sample, okay? Um, whereas in mold, really, you don't need to sample for the most part, and, and you shouldn't be sampling. If you're going out there and sampling um, as a routine part of, of a mold assessment, then you're doing it wrong. Okay, and why is that? Um, let, let, let me let me go on a different track here for okay. a second. Uh, about 15 years ago, um, EMSL actually had me doing a one-day training course for them. Uh, they asked me; they they paid me um, <laughs> for mold for, for <laughs> mold, yes, yes. sampling yes. or mold yeah. inspection. Uh, for, yeah, Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's like a mold 101. Okay. Um, and it was myself and, and another gentleman. And I got up there and I started telling people, if it looks like mold and it smells like mold, <clears throat> it probably is and don't take a sample. Uh, I also told people doing air sampling, uh, it, it's really, it, it's it's the, the, the value of it is, is, is quite questionable. Um, it's only telling you what, what's in the air when you take that sample. Right. You have no idea what's in the air five minutes later. Um, plus, I've done tons of, of sampling where side by side, and you find no correlation between spore trap and and um, and culturable. So here I am telling all these students this. <coughs> and oddly enough, EMSL never asked me to come and do this. Do this <laughs> course again. Um, so our laboratory for those that don't. Yeah, know. yeah, they, they they wanted to sell. Um, so. Again, if if you have to rely on sampling to be able to tell that there's mold there, then uh, you know you you need to go back and, and do some more training. But that's, I mean, there are times when we want for um, legal purposes and and maybe for other purposes to verify whether something we suspect is mold is mold or not. Would that be accurate to say? Um, yeah, a classic example is. Um, Actually, uh, after 9-11, after the attacks at the Trade Center, where um, I was working in Deutsche Bank, and, and we had, a, it was, the basement was like a chia pet with all the mold in it. And we actually had to take samples um, to prove to the insurance companies that it was mold. Mm -hmm. uh, as ludicrous as it sounds, but we had to do it, so. So could we separate? I was going say, there, there's uh, another example of that, too, efflorescence. Uh, let's say in a residential basement where you see that white fuzzy stuff coming off a of foundation wall and it could be suspected fungal growth or yeast or more, more often than not it's a mineral deposit yeah. you know, and there's a case where a tape lift really does tell you Another what you're dealing example. with. If yes. I have a diffuser that that has dirt on it, it might just be dirt from the uh, indoor no, environment. You're, you're, you're going to find spores in there. You, you'll well, find probably primarily clasporium, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're typical, but there, w there will be spores in there and, and if Okay. If what does have, that mean? If you yeah. have a mold assessor who, who's a four-day wonder, if my son went out and took that sample and he took the tape lift and he comes back, you know, all this, oh, clasporium, he'd be like, oh, it's contamination. No, it's not. And he'd say clean the ductwork, which yeah, would be also erroneous because it's impacted from the room. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. yeah. From, well yeah. how do you differentiate between actual growth 
on a diffuser or in a mechanical system <clears throat> and something that looks like actual dirt. Um, in that case, you, you wouldn't want to take like a culturable sample because that's all that's going to tell you is that you have culturable spores. Okay. So you could do a table of sample and then you're looking uh, the lab, if you've got a good lab, will tell you that uh, you've got um, hyphae and, and you've got canidia spores and, and you've got obvious active growth occurring within that sample that you took, as opposed to just individual spores. Deposition, yeah. What about situations where we have uh, hidden mold growth? I'm looking at some wallpaper here in this uh, hotel that we're in on the exterior wall in an air-conditioned building, um, and you're not going to go along and pull all that wallpaper off. Would it help to do some sampling, not to confirm if there's a health issue, but to help you evaluate if there's an issue with the building? Could be. Okay. Could be. <laughs> Good yes. answer. Okay. Now, um, do you want to go in there and do air sampling? No. I would say no. Okay. Um, I, I uh, granted, when I first got within the field, I liked the air sampling. I thought it was really cool, especially spore traps. Um, as I got older, I somehow got a little bit wiser, I think. Um, and I'm more of the mind of doing table of samples looking at what is settled um, on horizontal surfaces that aren't routinely cleaned. Okay. okay. That will tell you what was in the air, okay, and what is settled down. And if you do a table of sample and it comes back with, with high counts of stachybotrys or uh, ketomium or ulocladium, you know, something that's a, a, a moisture indicator um, fungi, mm -hmm. then I would say, okay, now we need to look further. Okay. And what the source is. Because, again, that's a great, I think Jack touched on a great thing there, that you, know, you get the historical data that way, which is a great starting point. But that's almost like you, there's a lot of people in the industry that are pushing the ERMI test, the ERMI, which is basically either a wipe or a vacuum a collective sample in the whole environment. Which and then it's analyzed via you know PCR you know, DNA based analysis, which is accurate analysis. But at the end of the day, what does that mean? You know, it means that somewhere within that building envelope, these things existed. Why are they there? It doesn't give you any other information, and you could make really generalized conclusions that may be wrong. You know, not unlike right. the parable with the five blind guys and the elephant. Uh, they're all touching different parts right. and they all have right. a different answer. They're right in their in their limited assessment, but their overall scope of the problem, not so much. Right. I get one more common example of times when sampling is um, uh, let's when people do sampling and it is um, criticized. Home inspectors are commonly out looking at quick turnaround on residential uh, commercial buildings. They go into a building and obviously the person selling the building isn't interested in showing off their mold. So they <laughs> clean it up real quick and they cover it up with some paint. And the home inspector has no visible signs of moisture. Um, and, I, and I've seen this happen where they will then take a few samples and they'll come up with numbers that appear to indicate a problem and then um, they will red flag that sale and say you know based on the the sampling that I've done we should have a mold inspection of the they're not calling it a mold inspection they're just doing and, and there's been times when they found things that they maybe would not have found um, is that an appropriate time for sampling or is that a bad idea 
I know it's a tough one to talk yeah, about yeah, beforehand, yeah. but it's it's one that I, I see a lot of times out in the field. Just bring it on me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, Bob, do you, do you have anything? I mean, yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, you know, for years, and it's one of the things as a consultant, you know, prior to my uh, publisher days, um, and, you know, we get calls at our office all the time for residential sales, wanting wanting to pay a minimal fee, come out and pop a few spore traps, and make a pass-fail on whether you should buy the property. And, like, I won't touch that with a 10-foot pole because, first of all, air sampling is subjective enough if you were doing it, and if you're doing it right, and then to try to make a determination based on a couple of limited samples over a five-minute excursion and say whether this building is going to be okay or not, I don't know. I don't really like to question the value of my E&O insurance that much. You know, then I'm going to make the right call there. It's just, it's, you might as well. You might as well. You do just as well rolling dice or getting the eight ball and you know looking at that because you're going to have about the same amount of valuable information. Yeah, it's going to be about as accurate. Yeah, like that. Absolutely. These guys are in a tough position, though. I mean, they're a home inspector. They have to make a call. They, they have to, and they're not making it. In many cases, they're not calling it a mold inspection. It's just. But if they're using a spore trap, they're using the wrong parameter. Get your IR camera there, scan the building, look for thermal differences. Now bring your moisture meters in, look for moisture problems. Those are the things to look for. Okay. You're doing, you know, looking using the building science behind it. And you, if you find atypical moisture profiles in a building, there's something going on there, and that's of concern okay. more so than a spore trap, in my yeah. opinion. All right, very good. Now. I've asked a couple of people this question. I want to get this from you, Jack. What's what's an up and coming? You know, what's the next mold? Molds become a hot topic next in the indoor air quality. What's the, the next, next mold? Mold, mold is the next asbestos. So the, mold. Yeah, so what's the next mold? <laughs> there you go. Mold. Now, what's next? Are we going to be dealing with? Uh, well, I, I have some thoughts, but let me hear what you think. Well, if I knew, I wouldn't tell you. I'd <laughs> I mean, He'll have to kill you. Players. He'll have to kill you. And, uh, and all of you, oh, and that's just well not said. where we want to go. Well said, <laughs> you know, uh, some people may say PCBs, and, and PCBs are, are um, very much an issue in, uh, in New York um, and, and Northeast, and to a lesser degree out in California. Um, but I don't really see that happening because when you go to the center of the country, they don't have the money to even think about having to deal with it, and and. For the most part, PCBs, it's not, um, it's, the, the health impact isn't one that is readily obvious to most people. It's not like with mold where you get asthma or you have allergies or you have people who lose their minds. Um, <laughs> something that happens quickly. <laughs> right. okay. um, Sorry. I think. And, and I may be wrong on this, but um, after, after the Legionella outbreak last year in New York City, um, I think people have started to realize um, that the problem wasn't solved after the original outbreak in 1976. I think a lot of people have kind of forgotten about it. And what we saw in New York City in New York State is where they pass regulations for now you've got to take care of uh, cooling towers mm -hmm. and it, you've got to have a program. Uh, and that's kind of the first step. Yes, we know cooling towers have problems. And New York City Department of Health just this past couple of days ago um, actually went a step further and said now you have to do testing specific for Legionella every 90 days. Now this is, this is a big change from what the CDC and, and 
um, ASHRAE and a number of others through the VA. Um, it's proactive. Yeah, it's a proactive this stance. Is, this yeah. is not only do you look at the maintenance of your cooling tower and, and your chemical treatment and all that, but you also need to test for the organism that causes um, disease. Uh, ASHRAE just came out recently or, or last year with their um, new 188 uh, uh, standard for um, dealing with building water systems uh, and leachinol control, though they don't say to sample for it. Um, AIHA uh, put out a guideline. I was a, a co-editor on that, Recognition, Evaluation, Control of Legionella and Building Water Systems. And I would be surprised if we didn't see other states take a look at what New York did and um, think about, at least think about enacting their own regulations for dealing with primarily, initially, cooling towers, but you also have to look at hot water systems. So, <clears throat> I think that's more likely to occur than seeing PCBs dealt with across the nation. So, Legionella might might be another up-and-coming indoor air quality issue. And uh, what about um, uh, flame retardants and semi-volatile organic compounds? Is that something you're hearing more about, getting more calls on? Or I don't get a lot of calls on it. I mean, obviously it's an issue. And and one of the other issues is uh, because of lead and, and low VOCs right, um, and green buildings, um, and manufacturers, they know which VOCs we're going to be looking at when we do testing. They know we're going to do acetone, we're going to do... Um, we have this list of VOCs. Well, what we're finding out is that they have gone in use different VOCs that we never really looked at now and <laughs> replacing from the other one. So it's low VOCs for the ones that we look at, but it's not low VOCs overall. They're putting other stuff in there that, that we haven't studied and have no idea what potential impacts there might be. It seems like VOCs in general are another issue that may be uh, more more prevalent in the future with people's uh, concerns. We've got the vapor intrusion, you've got uh, off-gassing from different building products and from contents within buildings. Well, any questions from the audience? I thought someone might have had a question earlier. Okay. I mean, well, certainly formaldehyde, too. We think formaldehyde, that, well, that's that, another big that's one. That's, yeah. It is a big one because the EPA, you know, the potential regulatory action on that's been sitting, what, dormant for five years now? Hmm. Uh, and it's really, you know, there's... Yeah, <laughs> there's studies, there's all kinds of stuff, and yet nobody's pulled the trigger to actually start implementing it. <laughs> I think among consumer products, another one that somewhere down the line is going to become an issue is the use of nanoparticles. We're going we're going insane with the use of nanoparticles, and I, we do, we don't completely understand. Um, we we have if you look at multi-wall uh, carbon nanotubes, um, if you look at that, they look remarkably like. Uh, Christop asbestos, and they've actually done studies where they've seen it causes uh, changes within the uh, mesothelial tissues within mice. Um, we also know that if you take gold, which is, I mean, everybody's got gold and you could swallow this, but if, if you go to the nano size gold, it's toxic. You know, something that's, uh, that's okay on, on Large scale is not okay mm -hmm. when you get down to the nano size. And there are so many different products where they're now incorporating 
nanoparticles, and, and we just don't understand that exposure. Thanks, Jack Springs. It's oh, always thank a pleasure you. to see you, and uh, appreciate Jack. it. Thanks. Get yourself unplugged. Sorry if I hit you with any curveballs. <laughs> as, as, as before we start the intro, another quick plug for you. Um, the, this issue, the uh, April issue of Healthy Indoors Magazine cover story is on Legionella. And uh, wow. fe- features uh, a lot of, you know, on, on Jack, Smith, Jack, Jack Standard. David, Dr. David Krauss uh, wrote an update to his series he did two years ago for us. And you can get to that at iaq.net. It's a free magazine. Um, some good information in there on that topic. Help the indoors. Yeah. Got to throw the shameless plug in. <laughs> All right. That's this week's edition of IAQ Radio. Thanks to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Of course, to our engineer, John, you got to have faith. And all of our guests for this week, we had Sam Rashkin, Paula Shank, uh, David Shea. We had Jack Springston, of course, Bob Krell. We'll be back next Friday at noon. We've got uh, the interview with Dr. Brett Singer from Lawrence Berkeley Labs. Until then, have a great weekend and uh, come back and join us again next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 